0: If you believe that you had something to do with why you're a Christian, then you will conclude that you also have something to do with your sanctification, and your entire perspective about your Christian life and experience will be turned on its head.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you ever thought about the hills and valleys and the contours that your life has taken? And from a spiritual journey perspective, how are you doing Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 18-part series titled This Is Your Life. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at what Paul describes as your spiritual biography. And there's one key point you should understand about your spiritual story. God alone is responsible for why you've come to enjoy... blessings of new life in Christ Jesus. It's the common story all about how sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath instead become recipients of His grace. Do you understand this great and wondrous truth? Well, Tom, Ephesians chapter 2 is really a deep dive into the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it?
0: That's exactly right, Bill. The truth is the book of Ephesians unfolds for us the eternal plan of God, specifically the plan of redemption. And the first chapter unfolds that plan and its cosmic expressions. But when you get to chapter 2, you really see how the plan of God and salvation works out in each individual life. And there we learn that, that we who were once dead in our sins, spiritually dead to God, through Christ and by His grace alone have been made alive in Jesus Christ. This isn't because of something we have done, instead it is a gift of God's free grace that's given to those on whom He has set His love. So I encourage you to to stay with us. This passage has dramatically affected my own soul, more so really than any other passage. And so we're in for a real treat as we walk through these rich verses, just one Greek sentence, but powerful in the truths that it shares with us.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed.
0: As you know, if you've been around our church for any time at all, I, I came to genuine faith in Jesus Christ as a senior in high school. And that fall, after my senior year, I went off to a Christian college to study pre-law and with the plans of becoming an attorney. During my undergraduate course of study, I sat in a number of Bible classes. And many things that I heard and studied and read deeply affected me, but none greater than the first semester of my senior year. That year, I was serving as a resident assistant responsible for a hall of about 80 to 100 guys, and from time to time, it fell my responsibility to call a hall meeting and to give a devotional to all the men on my hall and on the other end of the floor, the first floor as well, so a couple of hundred guys. And one evening, as I prepared to teach those men the truth of Ephesians 2, the Lord gripped my own heart. For me, coming from the churches that I had known as as a child and as a young person, it was a paradigm shift of the greatest magnitude. That night I experienced what I believe was one of the most profound examples of illumination that we studied toward the end of last year that I have ever experienced. As a result of what I learned from this text, I was just overwhelmed with this profound sense of joy. I had a personal confidence that I was truly in Christ that I had never experienced to the same degree before. If anyone had seen me that evening quietly studying down in a private room, they would have thought I was Pentecostal. And then that night at about 10 o'clock, those men gathered and got the overflow of what I had learned. By God's grace over the next couple of weeks a sort of mini revival broke out there on the first floor of R.K. Johnson Dormitory. Several men came to faith in Christ and many others were gripped by the same truth that had so profoundly gripped me that night. Since that time my senior year my senior year of college, the truth of the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 has dominated my understanding of the gospel and colors my understanding of all of Scripture. Now, I can't promise you that this text will have the same effect on you that it did on me, but I can promise you this. If you have never embraced the truth that's taught here, it will be a life-changing experience for you. And if you have already come to to enjoy and embrace the truth that's here, you will only be confirmed and strengthened as a result of our study together. And by the way, that's not because of me. That's because what we will study together is the living and powerful words of the eternal God. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 down through verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them what a beautiful and profound passage of Scripture We should start studying it together by noting how this sentence, and it is really one long sentence again in the Greek text, we should note how this sentence is connected to the first chapter. You remember that in chapter 1, we learned in verses 3 through 14 that we have received some amazing spiritual blessings through the work of Jesus Christ. And after he touches on those blessings in just sort of a a cursory way, Paul moves on in verses 15 to 23, the second half of chapter 1, to pray that we would come to fully understand and grasp those blessings. And that happens through the work of the Spirit as he illumines our understanding, as he turns on the light so that we get it, we understand it. In that passage, we learned that nothing is as important to our spiritual growth and development as growing in our real spiritual knowledge of what God has done for us. If you're a Christian, you don't need some additional resource that God has not yet provided you. Instead, your growth in grace will be tied directly to your apprehension of the blessings that you already enjoy. The blessings in chapter one but when we come to chapter two Paul is not done filling out our knowledge he's not done teaching us remember that he doesn't come to his first real imperative his first real command until chapter four the first three chapters of this wonderful letter are all teaching us about what God has already done in Christ And as you will see when we get to chapter 4, when he finally does get to the imperatives, when he finally does issue commands, he builds those commands on the foundation of the teaching that he has laid in chapters 1 through 3. Now, this is so foreign to most American Christians. The average professing Christian says, skip the doctrine and get me to the practical stuff. Don't teach me any doctrine, just tell me what to do. Tell me how to fix my marriage. Explain how I can communicate better, how I can be more successful at my work. Help me to learn how I can have my best life now. It's not that those things aren't important. Certainly, we need to have marriages that honor Christ. We need to communicate in a biblical way, and Paul will get there in this letter. But for Paul... You are not truly ready to address those practical issues unless you have also begun to understand the doctrine on which they rest. So chapter 2 continues with our education about what God has done for us in Christ. And specifically here in this first paragraph, he explains how we as individuals came to enjoy the incredible blessings of chapter 1. We saw glimpses in chapter 1 of our sinfulness, and yet we have come to enjoy those great blessings. How? How does that happen? How does a sinner deserving of God's wrath come to enjoy those incredible blessings from his hand? Well, here he tells us in chapter 2. As Harold Honer writes in his commentary, Paul states here how sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath become trophies of his grace. You see, what you have at the beginning of chapter 2 is the spiritual biography of every Christian. It is your spiritual biography, and it is my spiritual biography. That's why I entitled this message, This is Your Life. This is your spiritual biography. And there's one key point that Paul wants us to get about our biography, about our story, our spiritual journey. And that is that God alone is responsible for why we have come to enjoy the blessings of chapter 1. Because this chapter, and particularly this paragraph, is about what God has done in regeneration. Notice verse 1, you were dead. Literally, the Greek text says, you being dead. The Greek word for were... Is a participle, not a main verb. So really, verses 1 through 4 constitute a dependent clause. To accurately reflect it in English, we could translate it like this when you were dead, and so forth. And then the main verbs of the sentence don't come till verse 5 and verse 6. Notice verse 5 He made us alive. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He being God. God acted. He gave us spiritual life. By the way, giving spiritual life to the dead is one of several word pictures that the Bible uses to describe the life-changing work of God in the human heart. It's a powerful picture. Where there's death, God speaks life. So the theme of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is this, God's amazing work of regeneration. We can reduce the powerful, life-changing message of this passage to one simple sentence, and it's this sentence that still sticks in my mind from my senior year of college, because this is what I learned, and this is what I condensed it to then. This is the truth this passage intends to communicate, Salvation is entirely the work of God from beginning to end. That's the message of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And if you miss this message, if you fail to understand this message, then your Christian life will be thoroughly man-centered. If you believe that you contributed to your salvation in any way, then you will get some of the credit for it, and that steals from God's glory. If you believe that you had something to do with why you're a Christian, then you will conclude that you also have something to do with your sanctification, and your entire perspective about your Christian life and experience will be turned on its head. Paul, here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, believed that it was crucial for us to understand exactly what God did when he saved us. And he lays out here what he wants to teach us about this dramatic change called regeneration, and we'll learn more about what that means for those of you who aren't clear on that term, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from today. You can see the the way he lays out this dramatic change in three simple parts of the sentence. You can see them clearly in the syntactical flow, even as I read it probably. In verses 1 through 3, Paul describes what we were. In verses 4 through 6, he describes what God did. And in verses 7 through 10, he explains why God did it. So what we were, what God did, and why God did it. I want us to begin today with just the first of those parts of this passage, what we were. Presented in the first three verses of this amazing paragraph of text. In these first three verses, Paul reminds us in graphic, powerful, poignant terms of what we used to be. Notice the key expression down at the end of verse 3, by nature. You see, what Paul describes in these three verses is what we were by nature. Notice at the beginning of verse 2, he uses the word formerly, and again down at the beginning of verse 3, he uses the same word. He's saying, I want you to know what you were by nature, what you used to be. Now, remember to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches. These people, for the most part, are already Christians. They've already repented of their sins. They've already followed that spiritual path that leads down so it can lead up. They've already come, as our Lord taught, to acknowledge that they were spiritually bankrupt, that they were beggars in spirit. They they knew they had nothing to offer God And they've already mourned over their sin. Already those things happened long ago when they became Christians. So why is it that Paul feels he needs to take them and us back down this road of how sinful we were? Why do we need to be reminded of that? I mean, isn't this kind of depressing and discouraging to think about what we used to be? We understand really what Paul is doing here. If you've ever been to a jewelry store, if you go into a jewelry store and you ask to see a diamond, what do the nicer stores always do? I remember this. I actually bought my wife's ring from from a man that um, I was sharing an apartment with. He was into the jewelry business, and even he, even in that setting, did the same thing. But what do they do at a nice jewelry store? The first thing they do is lay down on top of the counter a dark pad leather velvet black or the darkest hues of navy and then after they've laid that pad out on the top of the counter only then do they reach inside the cabinet and bring out their stones and carefully lay each one against that back that dark background now why do they do that because you can only grasp the brightness and the dazzling brilliance of the diamond when it is contrasted with the dark. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in the first three verses of this chapter. He's laying down the dark background so that when he gets to the brilliance of the work of God in our salvation, we'll be able to see it in every facet. We'll be able to see it in all its glory. You cannot fully appreciate what God has done and live in the light of it if you don't first come to a deep understanding of what you were before God intervened. The reason there is a shallow Christianity, I believe, in our country is because we do not understand, for the most part, the pit from which we have been dug William Hendrickson, the great commentator, says, the more men learn to see the dimensions of their utterly lost condition, the more they will also, by God's grace, appreciate their marvelous deliverance. So Paul takes us back. He takes us back in time to what we used to be. If you're a Christian here this morning, Paul wants you to remember. He wants you to think about how God found you. Now, Paul's explanation of what we were before Christ includes several things. You'll notice in the first part of verse 1, it includes our true condition. In the second part of verse 1, the root cause in trespasses and sins. In verses 2 and 3, you have the practical results of our condition, how we lived, how that condition displayed itself day in and day out and at the very end of verse 3 you have god's perspective about us in that condition we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest so we're going to look over the next couple of times we have together at our true condition the root cause of that condition the practical results of that condition and god's perspective about us when we were in that condition So in the time remaining this morning, I want us to examine our true condition before Christ found us. Notice verse 1, four words, and you were dead. And you were dead, literally, and you being dead. Paul uses the present tense of the Greek verb for that participle to make a very important point you being dead. In other words, death was our state of being. It was our constant condition. It was our nature. It wasn't an aberration that occasionally we were dead. We were dead as a condition. Now, this cuts completely across the perspective of most people. James Montgomery Boyce, before his death, wrote that there have always been three basic views of human nature. One view says that man is perfectly well. That man, given the right opportunity, will demonstrate the goodness of his heart. He'll do the right thing. Man is wonderful and that the problem is the outward circumstances that have somehow pressed and forced him out of what he would do, given the right opportunity. A second view is that man is sick. Man is sick. Now, the different views would have the sickness at various stages from slightly sick to terminally ill, but sick nonetheless. The biblical view is that man is dead. That is, he is completely spiritually without life. He is dead in reference to God. Over in chapter 4... We see a glimpse of this, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18, we read of those who are unsaved that they are darkened in their understanding, and notice the second part of verse 18, they are excluded, are alienated from the life of God. They are excluded, or another way to translate it would be alienated from the life of God. They don't enjoy the true life of God. Turn back to Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells these three parables. You remember uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, one who leaves and one who stays at home, but both lost. And notice what, how he describes how the, the words he puts in the mouth of the Father representing God here receiving a sinner notice how the father speaks of the son the prodigal who's returned home verse 24 he says i want you to throw a party for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again he wasn't physically dead he was partying in the far country and then reduced to the worst of situations but from the mindset and perspective of the father He had died, and he needed life again, and he'd been brought to life by his repentance. You see it again down in verse 32. We had to celebrate, he tells the older brother, and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. What does the Bible say about church membership? In Tom Pennington's book, Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member, he identifies three non-negotiable hallmarks that should characterize every church member. Tom will challenge you to assess your own church membership to determine if you're meeting those hallmarks, not only for the health of your church, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Purchase your copy of Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member today at thewordunleashed.org That's thewordunleashed.org And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team I'm Bill Wright Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed Exalting God's Glory Explaining God's Truth